and welcome to Inside Medicine. I'm Dr. Jordan Schlain, founder of Private Medical, practicing physician, and someone very interested in what science can tell us about how to better live our lives. Today's guest is child psychiatrist and renowned research scientist in early childhood mental health, Dr. Helen Egger. She is the co-founder and chief medical and scientific officer at Little Otter, which provides online mental health care to families and children. Prior to co-founding Little Otter, Dr. Egger was a leader in pediatric mental health at both NYU Langone and Duke Health. Hosting today's conversation is our New York-based pediatrician, Dr. Kelly Frayden. Dr. Frayden and Dr. Egger discuss the topics of pandemic fatigue, taking a family approach to mental health, and paying attention to the emotional and behavioral patterns in your children. I am so delighted to be welcoming Dr. Helen Egger here today to speak with me. And Helen is a, a psychiatrist and a parent and also the chief medical and scientific officer of a new company that I'm sure she'll tell us about. So Helen, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Kelly. I'm really delighted to be here. During the pandemic, it's been such a stressful time for everyone and over the last year, we've been hearing more and more, you know, pandemic fatigue. So child psychiatrists in particularly are, are in such high demand right now. Um, so where would you say we are with regards to our collective behavior and our assessment of, you know, children's mental well-being at this point in year two of the pandemic? I think we absolutely are having pandemic fatigue. And what's so difficult is the pandemic uh, isn't responding to our fatigue. And so <laughs> we are in a situation, I think, where we're two years into really a collective traumatic experience. I mean, in some ways, I feel like we haven't even really acknowledged that as a sort of society. But for so many families, particularly people with young children, have just been under unbelievable stress with having kids at home, disruption in school, having to work and juggle childcare and your children's education. And what we're seeing is that it really is uh, showing impact on the mental health of children and the mental health of parents. And, you know, these are common challenges even before the pandemic. Really, we're seeing that this experience we've had has really, really, really increased the challenges that kids and families are facing. So I, I'm wondering from your perspective as a, as a child psychiatrist, seeing all that you do, have you seen different challenges presenting at different stages of the pandemic? Like early on, you were seeing more anxiety or depression, and now you're seeing more uh, impact of chronic stress, or how has it changed? Well, I think that, you know, in some ways, when the pandemic first hit, nobody knew it would last this long. So I think that there are ways that uh, many of families were able to kind of rally and try to manage the situation. But as time went on, I think that kind of chronic stress has led to increased anxiety, increased depression. And we are still seeing that definitely. I think what is emerging now as children are going back to school and parents, some of whom were home, are going back to 
uh, working outside the home, that we're seeing issues around separation. We're seeing peer relationship issues for children who haven't had the opportunity to be social with peers. We're seeing some behavior challenges in school or group settings that they had. And this isn't necessarily my realm, but I think we're increasingly concerned that there are some kids who have been impacted academically by the differences in schooling that they've had to deal with over the last two years. And the academic struggles add to the mental health struggles in so many situations. Absolutely. And and I think the other thing is there are differences by different developmental age of kids. And I'm sure that's something that you're seeing as a pediatrician. I mean, the different impact on COVID babies who were born and haven't known anything different um, in the first years and months of their lives. But I think we need to think about the child's developmental stage and also what's happening in the family to understand how a kid is going to be impacted. I've had so many questions from parents just along those lines of how do they know when when they really have a problem? Because of course, we expect children to have some challenges adjusting to these fluctuating circumstances. It, it takes them time to gain the social skills that they maybe they missed out in these group situations. So, so when you're, when you're speaking with parents, uh, you know, of toddlers or preschoolers, what are the most common flags that you, um, make you say, Hmm, it is time to get, you know, some more support for your child's mental health. Yeah, that's, um, that's a fundamental question, I think. And I know as a parent of four children, it's one that, um, I have asked many times, when do you worry? When is what you're seeing sort of some variation of normal normative development? And when is it something that might be clinically significant? I think before we jump into what are the signs, I think it's also really important to acknowledge that even if the challenges you're facing with your child don't mean that your child has a mental health challenge, you might still need support and help. We want to really focus on prevention, which pediatricians do so well, and anticipatory guidance, but also what are very early signs so that we can really get support and help before they become, you know, having a negative impact on the kid or on the family. When we're thinking about mental health challenges, one, we look at patterns of behavior that are lasting really often two weeks, two weeks to a month are the kind of length of time. And we also want to look at, like, let's say it's um, your child being anxious. How frequently is it happening? How much distress is this causing your child? Is it impacting your child's ability to go to school or to do play dates? Or very, very importantly, how is it impacting your family? We don't just think about the impact on the child, we think about the impact on the family. And an example I would give is, if you have a child who has severe separation challenges um, and just doesn't want you to not be with them all the time, you can arrange your life so your child is not experiencing this upsetting anxiety, but you can have her sleeping in your bed you cannot have her 
going to daycare or any kind of group settings. You can not, you know, never have a babysitter, et cetera. And so even though you've sort of protected your child from experiencing that suffering, it's having a, you know, really, really bad impact on your family. So, so that's a point that I want parents really to be aware of. It's, it's around your child's health and functioning. And it's about your whole family's health and functioning. Other signs to look at are changes in emotions and behaviors, again, that are lasting over time. Changes in eating and sleeping. Those are our key areas. Often children present with uh, physical complaints. And I know as a pediatrician, you know this. So tummy aches, headaches, other aches and pains sometimes are a way that a child will manifest distress that they're feeling inside. I think you said something really interesting, which is that sometimes parents don't, you know, these accommodations that we make to make it through the day, to make it through the week, um, sometimes we make them subconsciously. And sometimes when you are at home more and more isolated, you can you can start doing more and more of this and kind of lose the bigger perspective of like being around other families where maybe they don't have to do as many things. And so sometimes I've seen families coming out of the pandemic where I'm like, I don't know if this is due to the pandemic or it's a delayed diagnosis because we've been out, you know, we haven't challenged this child in a social situation until now. Maybe we would have before. I think that's a super important point. And I think it's why as children go back to school, as parents go back to work, we're going to see some symptoms, particularly around anxiety and separation anxiety that we weren't seeing or social anxiety. Um, and that's one of the, you know, hardest things about anxiety, which is super common and now is has increased significantly. As parents, we want to protect our children from feeling this fear and upsetness. It's horrible. I've, I have children who um, have struggled with anxiety. And even though I'm a child psychiatrist and I know you're not supposed to accommodate it, you just have this feeling of like, wanting to take your child out of that situation. But what we know is that that accommodating anxiety only makes it worse because you're giving the message, yes, this is a really scary, bad situation, and I'm going to protect you from this situation by taking you away from it. So we really are just reinforcing the anxiety. And so I think an important point here is our job as parents is not to protect our children from feeling negative emotions or facing emotional challenges or other challenges. It's really to support them and give them the skills to be able to manage those difficult emotions that are part of life. Really one of the rate limiting steps for the screening programs have been that sometimes once you identify children, you don't always have somewhere to somewhere to send them. Uh, and so perhaps you could talk in case people aren't aware of like the context of children's mental health services in this country and sort of like the mismatch and maybe what role technology may play in helping to solve some of those challenges. Uh, you know, the thing to realize is that child mental health was a public health crisis before the pandemic, and that is only worse. So we know that about 20% of children have an impairing mental health 
uh, challenge or developmental challenge. And that's true, actually, from ages two to 18. And that 80% of children do not get mental health care they need. The further problem is that it's very hard to find evidence-based care. So basically care that's based on science delivered by practitioners who you can trust and know that they know what they're doing. I mean, there's two big factors, I think. The first is that insurance is problematic anyway in this country across the board, but in mental health has been carved out and there really hasn't been what's called parity in coverage for mental health care, that you have certain coverage for what are thought of as physical illnesses and mental illness has been treated differently. And that's, you know, been catastrophic. The other challenge particular to child mental health is few, you know, there are just not as many practitioners of people who know how to do it. So if you take child psychiatry, 72% of the counties in the United States do not have one child psychiatrist. So when you think about that, and this is why I left academia and uh, founded Little Otter with my daughter, is we're never going to solve this problem by thinking we can just train more people. We've been trying to do that now for 30 years and trying to train other professionals or train pediatricians to carry some of the mental health care, it, there's no way it's going to meet the need. And so that is where, as you mentioned, I think we have promise right now in how we bring digital innovation and telemedicine and data science. It's not just being able to deliver the care um, through a telemedicine platform, but also how do we make care more efficient, more effective, um, find ways to intervene as early as possible so we can prevent downstream a lot of the challenges. I think the key from my perspective is, and this is what we've done with Little Otters, we have to partner mental health professionals with top technology people to really find solutions and approaches that have been applied in other industries and have been transformative, but we haven't we haven't done that yet, and and that's what we need. We need actual transformative change, not incremental change. I think a lot of people think that little children, in particular, are like immune to having mental health challenges, but that is a misconception. And maybe you could talk about that a little bit. That some of these mental health conditions people may not get diagnosed with until later in life often do have roots in, in childhood. When I started doing this work, people would literally make jokes about, oh, you're putting babies on couches, or, well, maybe young children have challenges, but they're really just risks for later problems. But what my work and the work of other amazing people in the early childhood mental health field have shown is that in fact, the rate of these impairing mental health challenges is similar to the rate at, age, at older ages. So I'll, I'll give an example um, of ADHD, which you know we can reliably diagnose from about age three up. And you know our conceptualization of, of ADHD is it's actually a neurodevelopmental disorder, right? That is, and it can be 
you know, you're sort of, it's a combination of uh, genetics as well as, you know, what the context are for, for making the symptoms either more or less challenging. The average child who's diagnosed with ADHD is a nine-year-old boy who by the time you identify the ADHD, the child has problems with friends, they're kind of identified as a problem child at school, are you know behind academically, have a lot of conflict. And when we look back, almost to the parent, parents will say, we knew that there was something going on when our child was little. And I think the thing that I find interesting about early childhood ADHD is like, how the heck would you diagnose that when toddlers and preschoolers are inattentive, hyperactive, right? And impulsive. That's like the definition. This is when children are learning these skills. But what's important to realize, and it's true about ADHD or any of these uh, disorders, is it's a pretty high bar to get to the point of meeting diagnostic criteria. So if you take ADHD, you know, you have to have seven or more symptoms. It's not just one or two symptoms. You have to have a number, you know, a whole group of them, and the child needs to be impaired. It needs to be adversely affecting that child's functioning or relationships. So in one of my studies, which are community studies of preschoolers with ADHD, 45% had been suspended at least once from preschool. 15% had been expelled at least once for preschool. And 80% of them already, these are three to five-year-olds, were having significant problems in their relationships with their parents, with other adults, with siblings and peers. So to me, this is just an example across the board, is we are not recognizing that young children suffer, that young children suffer from these same challenges. And the great thing is we have treatments to help, right? I mean, it's it, that's the important thing. And that the longer that children suffer from these challenges without help, the more it impacts their development over time. And, and that's to me the, you know, the heartbreaker of it. And it's why I love early childhood mental health, because really it's hopeful. Like we want to think that childhood is sort of our magical vision of what it means to be a child. But the truth is, children from very young ages face a lot of challenges and and have challenges. But again, the earlier we can identify them, the earlier that we can help and then get a child back on track in terms of their development. You know, you alluded to something back a minute ago about how some of these mental health challenges do have, you know, genetic roots. And sometimes, you know, when I come across families where maybe a parent has a diagnosis of ADHD or a history of anxiety or 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 another mental health challenge, the parent is particularly motivated to help their child to prevent those issues from being a, a concern. And so what what advice do you have for parents who maybe know that some of these issues run in their family about the best way uh, to parent their child? I think first it's important to realize 
because you've faced challenges, it doesn't automatically mean that your child will face challenges. So I, it's not a sort of fatalistic point of view. Number two, I think that parents who have sought treatment and gotten effective care often can be fantastic advocates for their kids, right? Because they can recognize what the early signs are and want to, you know, help their kids earlier than maybe they got help. I think the key thing I'd like to emphasize, though, is whenever we're thinking about child mental health, we want to be thinking about parent mental health. So it's not just the, you know, that clearly there are genetic risks that run in families, you know, that if you're anxious, you know, there's going to be if you have an anxiety disorder, your child will be at increased risk for having anxiety or for ADHD. But that a lot of the ways that we can support our children, actually, some of it's directly working with our children, but a huge, huge part is also taking care of our own mental health. So that if a parent right now with the pandemic and if their child's having a lot of anxiety, it's really important to check in with the parent and and see how the parent is. And so, you know, if you have a mom or a dad who is really experiencing impairing anxiety, often my first recommendation is to find support for the parent to help him or her get the support, manage their symptoms. Because if you're feeling overwhelmed by anxiety, it's going to be challenging to be able to help your child regulate their anxiety. What's interesting is we see the other side of it, though, like with ADHD, we you know, commonly see a child who's diagnosed with ADHD and a parent has an aha moment that's like, oh my gosh, that's what I had. I thought I was a bad kid or a you know, like a bad student or things like that. And it can be very powerful for parents to, you know, get help for their child and realize, one, sort of rethinking their childhood and their challenges, but also, you know, there's adult ADHD and treatment for adult ADHD can make a huge difference in in an adult's life and in how a family functions. I think another factor that comes up is is how we use our caregivers because so often, you know, it's not just the parent and the child. If the parents are working, there may be uh, that the child is spending a lot of their day with, with nannies or babysitters. And so parents often have this additional responsibility of like making sure they understand all the complexity of of what's necessary to support their child's mental well-being. So so do you have advice for parents who are trying to navigate that as well? That's something actually we're thinking about a lot at, at Little Otter. One, you can, at Little Otter, you can bring in grandparents or nannies to be part of the whole care team. So again, because that there are so many different adults who are caring for a child. There are, in the early childhood realm, there is a whole thing of what are called competencies in early childhood mental health, sort of skills that, and knowledge that you would want someone to know. So actually, we're building at Little Otter a curriculum for nannies because what you know you want is someone who's been through 
learning about this and demonstrated that they have this knowledge. It's also recognizing these are really important jobs. People who are nannies and and caregivers of children, it's not like just a random person who's babysitting. This is a person who's going to have such a huge impact on your child and you want to have confidence. As I said, I have four kids, so I've hired lots of childcare. And I definitely would put my psychiatrist hat on. I would always ask and learn about the nanny's background, their family's challenges, their family's mental health challenges. I mean, I think that's the other thing. It's not just knowledge, but nannies and caregivers are bringing their own history and background. And it's not that if someone has faced challenges, that means they're not going to be good. It's just you want to know how have they dealt with them? How have they managed them? Um, How have they overcome adversity? Because you don't want people who are just bringing whatever way they were raised and all the baggage that they had from their childhood to, you know, bring it to your family. So it's a, it's a very complicated issue. You know, so often I see families, you know, start out their childcare journey with a newborn and sort of the questions that you're asking at that stage aren't always the ones that you'll wish you had asked at two or three because it becomes a lot more complicated and there's a lot of culture and a lot of, you know, the way you were raised that begins to come out and how you choose to discipline your child and how you choose to structure your child's day and and having a good fit with your caregiver with regards to those things, I think is very important. It gets back to the other side, which is this is a critical person in your family and how are you going to support that person's mental health and make sure that they're doing okay. So I, you know, I think it, it it's sort of a whole thinking very holistically about what people need to be able to thrive and and to support each other. This has been a wonderful conversation. I've learned so much. Thank you again for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much, Kelly. I really enjoyed talking about these things. 